Welcome to Aggie Fly Talk, where we sit down with the officers of the Texas A&M Fly Fishing Club and talk fly fishing, conservation, community outreach, and listen to the stories our guests have to share. We hope you enjoy the show, and please remember to subscribe and donate to the club. Welcome back to Aggie Fly Talk. Um, I'm your host and president of the club, Joseph Lopez. And today I have the pleasure uh, of sitting down with our fly tying chair of the club, uh, Mr. Avon Alvarado. Howdy, howdy. <laughs> it's great to have you here, man. Thankful to be here. Yeah, that's awesome, yeah. So uh, today we're going to get to uh, know a little bit about, or I guess learn a little bit about you and uh, where you've learned to fly fish and... Uh, yeah, some some things up in Canada I hear. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that in the show. But um, give us a little bit of background about yourself, um, and yeah, your introduction into fly fishing in general. So my name is Aiden Alvarado. I'm 18 years old. And I'm from Austin, Texas, and I've kind of been around fly fishing my whole life. Um, my dad got into it quite a while back, and uh, wanted to wanted to introduce it to me at a, at a real young age. Um, but he knew that he had to wait a couple of years for me to be able to actually understand what was going on. So I first started fishing conventional, like most people do. Um, catching my first fish at like two years old or something like that. It was a catfish in a stock pond. But quickly, uh, I think it was around age six, he kind of really started introducing me to, to fly fishing um, in the hill country. Um, being from Austin... We have so many spectacular fisheries within 20 minutes to an hour and a half drive from Austin. Like, there's so many incredible creeks and rivers that just are loaded with fish. Um, now, sorry to interrupt real quick, but where did you grow up exactly in Austin? Like, uh, North Austin or? Uh... I grew up in Northwest Austin, basically. Okay. Um, North Central Austin. So, the easier access waters for us were... Uh, like Bull Creek, which runs through central Austin, um, or rivers like um, uh, the San Gabriel River, uh, mm-hmm. the Llano, the Perdinalis, um, and creeks like Brushy Creek. Um, we fished all the time. Um, and my dad took fly fishing, uh, like teaching me how to fly fish pretty slow, especially because I started at such a young age. Um so we'd watch fly casting videos and then go cast yeah, or go fish really simple. And it would just be a popper on a five weight and we'd just be casting in little streams, nothing complicated, not far casts, but just something to allow me to catch fish and get engaged with the sport. And I remember when I was a little bit older, I think I was like eight or nine years old. We, we had this one video and I can't remember it, but it was a, it was a fly casting instructional video. And I remember watching it one day and being so excited to go cast. I was like, I'm set and I'm just going to practice casting the whole time. And then my dad took me to a little creek and all that casting went right out the window as soon as I saw fish. And I was like, well, we're just going to try and catch fish now. Um, <laughs> that's how it always goes. So, so uh, you, you went to Anderson High School, right? Yeah, okay. that's right. I have a few friends that, that – uh, um, I still or went there um but that's uh that's pretty much 
I mean, you, you're a lot of you're a lot closer to some creeks and, and rivers than a lot of people that go to Austin High, like downtown. Are. So I mean, they have they have the lake down there, uh, right downtown, but mm-hmm. it's it's heavily packed with you know paddleboarders sometimes and yeah. <laughs> a bunch of bunch of watercraft. So that's cool, man. So you you grew up basically. Uh, um, catching freshwater fish on the fly, correct? Uh, yeah. Sunfish, bass in, in the Austin area? Yeah, I pretty much started um, fly fishing for just little panfish um, and little bass. Like, I didn't catch mm-hmm. a, a big bass on the fly for years. Um, and that's mostly because I was fishing with a five weight and I was fishing little tiny poppers in mm-hmm. little tiny creeks that would yield good days. I mean, we'd have days where we'd catch 100, 150 fish without any issue, you know, in just a couple hours. But it wasn't until later um, in my teens that I really started focusing on bigger fish. I stopped caring as much about uh, catching panfish, which are still an awesome, like it's still a fun thing to go do. But I started chasing those bigger bass and the more elusive fish like cichlids that we have um, around the Austin area where, you know, you're not as not as likely to catch them, but... Uh, you know they're still there and present a fun challenge for you right so when did you uh actually get introduced to trout fishing and was it here uh in texas at the Guadalupe, or was it out of state so my first intro to trout fishing was years and years and years ago fishing stocked ponds and stock okay stock lakes with <clears throat> power bait for trout and i think i was around 10 or 12 when my dad decided that i was old enough to go down to the quad and um, fish it successfully. We had had a lot more uh, high water years um, around that age for me. So the quad was flowing at like 300 cubic feet per second, which is significantly faster than what it's at right now. I think it's at like 71 or 60. It's low, low, low. Um, So the much faster water made walking more difficult, especially for someone shorter smaller younger like myself at the time um but it was around that age when he took me down to the guad um and we just streamer fished um i caught my first trout on a little two and a half inch gray and black tungsten beadhead willy booger right off the launch at um rio guadalupe resort we had the kayak or the canoe sorry right there and we hadn't even put it in the water yet. And I caught one on my, like, second cast. And I was like, oh, this is going to be the most epic day ever. Like, the fish are just going to be everywhere. And I didn't catch a fish the rest of the, the, rest of the trip. <laughs> and that was, like, eye-opening for trout fishing. Just because it can be a struggle sometimes. And sometimes it's, you know. Sometimes you can't stop catching them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's crazy, um, man. So... Being that you're our fly tying chair, and I mean you're an amazing fly tire. I've seen a bunch of your flies that you whipped up. When did you? When did that come into your life? And did it come in a weird way? I know some people, um, like Chris Johnson himself said, he actually started fly tying before he started fly fishing. And uh, was that the case for you, or did you start uh, with fly fishing before fly tying? So I, I had fished for several years in advance to fly tying, and watched my dad fly tie. I mean he had tons of material and was he was still learning how to fly tie but he was significantly more proficient than uh than I was and he started me off on really simple flies mm-hmm. and they're flies that I think every beginner should learn 
foam beetle, the woolly bugger, and the clouser. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to uh, like Living Waters Fly Shop, which is our, I would say, our home fly shop in Austin, and their beginner fly tying classes are foam beetle, woolly bugger. And um, the Brushy Creek Streamer, which is another really simple tie. Right. Um, so he started me off with those, and those were, you know, my first ties were incredibly sloppy, and, you know, we'd had to cut them apart and mm-hmm. redo it. Um, but I started that, I think, around age eight. Okay. Um, some, somewhere around there. That's still um, pretty young, man. And uh, I, I quickly, quickly grew a passion for it, and kept tying and kept tying and you know um i kind of would get on these fixes right like i'd say oh it's white bass season and mm-hmm. i'd whip up a ton of white bass flies or um like i'd do it kind of by season and that was good but it would mean that in the off season for whatever species it was i'd get a little bit rusty on some flies um so i kind of had to learn to to just constantly mix things up and make it exciting and just tie tie new flies and watch all sorts of videos, countless fly tying videos and just, right. you know, like I felt like that was a good way to, to get examples of what to tie. And then my dad continued to teach me. I went to Orvis fly tying nights and living water fly tying nights just to, to help expand my, expand my knowledge. Yeah, of course. And, um, I mean that's 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 still pretty young that you picked up fly tying. I mean I I didn't do it until shoot I was in college or like my first year of college. Um so that's that's pretty cool that you know and it's also it's also cool to hear you know as I talk to the different officers of the club y'all I mean y'all come from all different backgrounds, right? Just to see how how you know you grew up fly fishing here in Texas. It's so different than what I learned and so mm-hmm. different than what you know, some of the other officers learned and how they started. But let's jump into uh, carp fishing because that's a big, uh, not not controversial topic, but it's uh, it's very, uh, you know, like hesitated by a, a lot of people. They, they don't really like to touch on it and go into carp fishing that much. What is it like carp fishing here in Texas, uh, but also, you know, more in depth, like the Texas hill country? So carp fishing is one of the ones where I grew up and everything I heard about carp was their trash fish, their junk, um, and people would bow fish them. And that's the only way I really, really knew about carp fishing for several years was, um, bow fishing for carp. I've never done it, Mm. but I knew countless people who did. Um, and still almost every time I'm on the water, and say I'm fly fishing for carp, I'll run into someone who say, oh, you should just shoot them, right? Mm-hmm. Just shoot them and leave them on the bank. Now, that's legal here to do that from the bank, I guess, or, I mean, from any river system, or I don't know about that. So there are species that Texas considers rough fish, so I would say or non-game fish. Okay. Carp, uh, suckers. Gar, non, maybe? Non-alligator gar. So alligator gar, you can still bow fish, but there's a limit on them. Okay. Um, but like long nose, short nose, spotted gar, you can legally shoot as many as you want. And what a lot of people do is just dump them and say, oh, I'm using them for fertilizer, right? So yeah. they get past the, the wanton waste exactly um, by saying that's what they're using it for, which I, I really disagree with because I've seen while fishing hundreds of carp and gar 
piled up on the banks. Mm-hmm. They're not going to any good. I mean, some of, sometimes they'll get eaten by animals, but also carp and gar are so tough that a lot of animals can't get through their They're, scales to actually crazy. eat them. So you'll see some, I'm guessing, with like uh, arrow holes through them and just yeah. that's, yeah, that's that's uh, pretty bad. <laughs> so that's what I grew up observing um, mm-hmm. in central Texas. And then um, I got introduced to a man named Chris Fowler. He uh, at the time worked at Orvis Austin, uh, and now he owns a fly shop in Rockport called The Fly Trap. And he was the first big carp guy on the fly that I had ever met. And he loved to chase carp on the fly. Um, and so we had talked about it for many years before I um, caught carp. And uh, I had gone fishing, and I'd see a carp, and I'd tie on a fly that he recommended, and I'd casted it. But then I'd see a big bass. I'm like, oh, let's go catch the big bass. And he he told me, like, to get those carp, most of the time you really just got to put the effort in and focus on the carp because they're, they can be such a tricky fish to catch sometimes. And it took me a dozen trips at least of just carp fishing to catch my first carp. Wow. And so I had listened and listened to Chris talk about carp fishing and asked him so many questions. And I'm so thankful for him being patient and just answering my questions mm-hmm. um, about how to carp fish, what flies to use, what leader to use, what rod he's using, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Um, and so that was kind of like my intro to carp fishing. But I really got hooked on it when I caught my first carp. And I was fishing the San Gabriel River. It was, the sun was setting. I think it had actually set, and we were in the last, you know, 30 minutes of light once the sun is set. And I had been carp fishing, and I think I had hooked one before, just barely lip hooked it, and it popped off. And I saw a carp mudding up shallow, and I flipped a fly over there. I was fishing uh, Danny Scarborough's brass hawk in a... um, rusty color or crawfish color and I watched that fish flick its tail and I knew that it ate that fly I set the hook and it wasn't till I got it in the net that I realized what I had just caught from my first carp and it was a fully scaled mirror carp wow that was my very first carp which <clears throat> now explain to people how I guess it would be pretty rare right for that for one to catch one of those yeah parti- so particularly in Texas um, in wild environments, mirror carp are pretty rare. Like I, some some guys I know that target carp for years and years and years on the fly have caught a handful, five, yeah. six mirror carps in ten years of yeah, and that's all they target. I'm sure they're just working for carp. And, yeah, yeah, they're they're carp guys almost mm-hmm. exclusively, always fishing them. Um, and so the. Mirror carp are really rare here in Texas. There's places up uh, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, I believe, that get crazy big mirror carp. Um, And we just don't get those here. Um, But I didn't know really what it was. So I sent a picture to Chris. was like, yo, is this a mirror carp? And he goes, no way, dude. You don't know how lucky you are. 
because I've been chasing these fish for years. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, um, but the thing that had got me addicted to carp fishing was watching them eat and then the tug. Mm-hmm. And they, they fight like no other fish. They fight way harder than any any bass way harder than any trout that I've ever hooked. And I've, I mean, I've caught some good bass and I've caught some good trout, but carp are just another level, man. They, they have no quitting them and they know how to get you in the nastiest stuff possible. Um, and they're really picky sometimes, sometimes they'll eat whatever you put in front of them, but most of the time they're really picky. And that got me really interested in it because they were this fish where it was a challenge to catch. Yeah. No, it's always fun when you got a challenge ahead of you and you're just you're set on it and when the plan goes through you're just like, Yes, I can I can do this again. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about more uh of the flies used and, and the and the evolution of that since people started doing it here in Texas. What you know, what type of gear do you use for carp? Um, where should you go? What kind of water should you look for and the activity of the fish of course. And yeah, of course, what like what uh what flies do you use? So I fish for carp primarily my six-weight fly rod. I use a floating fly line, and I use a, uh, a nine-foot leader with an eight to 12-pound tippet section. Um, eight, if I'm fishing smaller carp and need to be really finesse, they're really picky eating small flies. Mm-hmm. 12 pounds if I know there's a chance at um, bigger carp. And I've even bumped up and fished 20-pound tippet when I knew... I was targeting giant carp. Um, so that's what I fished gear wise. Um, and so one of the things about carp fishing is your, your reel is super important because carp are one of the few fish that oftentimes you'll have them put you on your reel. And so what I mean is like when you set the hook on say a sunfish, it's not going to pull line out of your hand, generally speaking. Um, Mm-hmm. and pull enough line to get your uh, fly line onto your reel and out of your hand from just stripping it in. Um, trout will do it occasionally. Bass will do it occasionally. But carp almost consistently, especially if you hook them like on the end of a cast, will put you on your reel so fast. And they're the only fish I've had take me into my backing. Um, so wow. I, like I've hooked carp at 15 feet from me. And had them run 150 feet. So they're going the entire fly line plus 50 feet of backing away with a decent amount of drag just because they're, they're tough. Almost like running like a, a redfish kind of. Yeah. <laughs> just, just in a small stream and, and uh, it's a different fish. But yeah, they're powerful. That's, yeah, um, that's crazy, man. So, yeah, and then the flies, you know, what, what type of hooks are, are good to use? And, and I know a lot of people focus on weight and color. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Does it does it matter? And uh, what what does the bugs you know that you create? What does it imitate? So when I fish carp, um, I fish size flies from twelve up to about I think a six is the biggest I'll ever go. But usually I'm fishing a size eight fly. Okay, that's my my go to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not big at all for people that don't. <laughs> no, that's a that's a pretty small fly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But one of the things I really focus on is having a quality hook, um, whether that's going to a, a shop and buying flies or I'm tying them myself, is making sure you have a pretty stout hook because 
sometimes you have to put drag on those car- like heavy amount of drag on those carp and they'll straighten out a hook and i've had them straighten out several hooks that i was fishing that just weren't up to the task yeah um so having a, a decently heavy hook um is key and i'm i started out uh fly fishing like i said uh for carp the first carp i caught a fly on was danny scarborough's grass hawk um in the size eight and rusty crayfish and i generally fish three or four colors for carp i mean that's pretty much it or a variation of them but i fish a black colored fly for dirty water right visibility is not great and or sunlight is low and you need something to stand out to them yeah for them to see because more often than not when you're fishing carp you're sight fishing them you're not uh like occasionally you will randomly luck into a carp while white bass fishing or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, if you're targeting carp, you're sight fishing them. Um, So having a fly that's easy to see is really nice. Right. So black is a a great visible color, especially in the hill country where we have such clear water. Um, But sometimes the water is so clear and the sun will be high and their visibility is great that they'll see that black fly dropping in their face turn around so that's when i switch to other colors switch mm-hmm. to crayfish colors uh rusty oranges browns i prefer the duller patterns generally speaking um just because a bright orange while it will absolutely catch carp can also spook carp i've spooked a ton of carp with you know bright orange flies um and then greens i think i, fi- I fish a ton of um green and olive colors mostly because they imitate all the bugs out there i mean exactly if if you're picking up bugs off the bottom of a stream they're a a dark brown they're an olive they're a a greenish color Mm -hmm. um and that's what the carp eat a lot of the time there's times when they'll focus on snails and clams and vegetation and cotton seeds and stuff like that but a lot of the time they're eating those little bugs those uh mayfly nymphs the dragonfly nymphs yeah the damsel nymphs as well right Um, i know that you know i i've seen carp digging around so is that is that what they dig for like those little insects or is there something else in the substrate that they they kind of want because those they'll dig with their mouth like redfish you know so Um, i don't know if if there's any bugs in the substrate that they kind of eat on that's a lot of what they target is those bugs that are in the dirt they're not sitting up on top they're in the dirt mm -hmm. that they're digging for um but they'll also be eating vegetation and stuff like that like i've watched carp just feed off of algae before like floating algae and Mm -hmm. that's green so another reason to float to throw a Mm -hmm. green fly um and so some of the things to consider when you're carp fishing is how deep is the water how fast is the water and what are the carp doing and that helps me determine my fly the fly weight, and um, if I'm going to cast at it. Yeah. Because carp are super sensitive, and they learn. They're not stupid fish. <laughs> they they will learn um, really quickly if you're doing something and they don't like it. Um, so in, in deeper water, in faster water, you're going to want a heavier fly generally to get that fly down to the bottom. More often than not, the catchable carp are real close to the bottom and you prefer to have them feeding because if they're feeding, you know, they're actively looking for something 
and if they see a fly fall on their face they're going to want to they're going to want to eat it exactly um you can catch carp that are cruising you can catch carp that are just sunning themselves but those are more difficult to catch um and i catch carp way more often that are feeding than cruising um or sitting still and if you're fishing carp that are sitting still like carp will sun themselves yeah sit way up in the water column (laughs) just sunbathe and just sunbathe (laughs) yeah um and those carp i think i've caught like two that way it doesn't happen often because they're real spooky and you have to get a fly to land so softly in front of it because they're so high up yeah right yeah Um, their backs are almost out of the water basically yeah exactly if not already (laughs) so i'm using unweighted flies or flies with the smallest bead chain possible or just a wire wrap that's something that's super light just get it to barely sink and maybe get it in their face and maybe delete it mm-hmm. right right um if you have carp that are feeding you can use a pretty heavy fly and just bomb it into the mud right in front of their face mm-hmm. and that's when they'll eat it sure um you know and this is all stuff you you kind of have to learn by watching the carp you can't go out and say, I'm going to catch them exactly this way uh, before you get to the water because you never know what they're going to do. You know, yeah. carp, are, they change from hour to hour, day to day. That's cool that you say that because that only, you know, and that not only goes with carp fishing, it goes with trout. I know with on, on days that, uh, you know, the fishing's not good, I'll go out there and just scout, look at risers or go out there and, you know, when I was in Colorado, just to go scout out the streams. Mm-hmm. Um, but that goes for a lot of different fish too. Like carp, you may have to go out there sometimes with, you know, no fish uh, on a day where you just kind of look and scout the carp, scout their activity and, and what they're doing, what the locations they're at. Um, that kind of goes into like my next question about, you know, how different the hill country is in the topography and how that, you know, influences your carp fishing. I know that, you know, in some areas you can have some bluffs where you can stand up on to get some, some sight, uh, on the carp. And then there's some spots where it's super dense. So talk about, you know, the topography a little bit and how that influences carp fishing there. So one of the beautiful things about the hill country is that it is so incredibly diverse in the the water that you can run into. Um, like Joseph was saying, you can run into bluffs that are way up over the water, and you can use those to see fish. Um, the higher you up are, generally, the better vantage point you have. Um, there's also times where the only opportunity that you can like be fishing is standing in the water in chest deep water you're really low and it's hard to see fish um Mm -hmm. but thankfully one of the beautiful things about the hill country is in almost every river or stream our water is pretty clear Um, yeah sometimes it is crystal crystal clear where you can see 15 feet down Um, most of the time the visibility is probably around the six foot range Mm mm-hmm um, that's still pretty deep, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's really nice because it allows you to see fish really well. But on the other hand, they can see you. Yeah. Right. Carp have very good, like they have decent vision, but their lateral line is incredible and that's their ability to feel vibrations. So one of the things you have to do while carp fishing is be very stealthy. And by that, I mean. You're not stomping around real heavy in the water and then expecting the carp to eat right then and there. 
right? Because they'll feel those vibrations. They know something's not right. They know something's there. And they'll decide, hey, I'm not going to feed. I might sit right here, but I might not feed. I might not eat anything. Exactly. Um, so the clear water is a blessing and a curse. Um, and just in the hill country, you'll fish body or I fish bodies of water where the creek or river may be, you know, 20 feet wide um, and in completely enclosed by trees and your casting angles are very limited um, and that takes really short, precise casting. Or you'll fish places like the Pardinalis or the Llano where it can be very, very open. There's no trees anywhere near the bank. You're standing mm-hmm. on the rock in the middle of the river casting at fish that are, you know, 50 plus feet away without any issue or worry about getting stuck anywhere. Um, I guess the only issue there is if fish are close to you, you got to worry about your shadow, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, that that's really the only problem there. Yeah. So I've noticed that if you can find a place where your shadow is not being cast over the fish, um, it is much nicer, uh, cause you're not as likely to spook the fish, the, your casting like fish can see your fly line flying over the water and if you're throwing a shadow with that over top of them they can they'll know that um or if they see your arm moving or your body moving to get into position you know they can just boogie on out of there right you might might not ever get an opportunity but sometimes that's not the case and so then you have to be as stealthy as possible get low be quiet very minimal false casting just to get flies in front of them and one of the best tips i was told um, and i've been told numerous times this and still need to focus on it is make your cast count but understand you might only take five casts at carp if you're looking for good opportunities because i've spent years chasing carp and spooked hundreds of carp by casting at carp that weren't willing to eat and I knew they weren't like they were cruising really fast and I was casting at them anyways. And there was a pot of eight carp and they spooked and they spooked every other carp with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you, it's really advantageous to the carp fishermen to take your time, observe the fish if you can see them and then pick out one that's feeding or one that you, you believe you can get a fly in front of with this few false casts or as few, cast at the water as possible Um, because you may have a carp feeding but if if your cast isn't isn't right where you want to put it and you pick it up you know that fish will feel the fly line coming off the water he'll hear it he'll see it and he can spook like that i mean they don't when they decide to feed they can turn that off in a fraction of a second exactly um so carp fishing if you can see the carp watch them observe and pick one fish like if you see a fish feeding, that should be your fish to focus on, mm-hmm. not the fish that's cruising at you know ten miles an hour up the river. Right, you're much more likely to catch the feeding fish, especially if you can make one good cast at it. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good tip because I think a lot of people get so distracted and they want to chase a fish. You know, I know for myself, if I see a couple of fish, I'm going to try for those couple of fish because I, you know, common sense is like you have more chances. But with carp, I, I feel like that can be different because 
some some fish species will spook all of the other fish with them and some mm-hmm. won't like bass is a that's a good example is like some of them will spook but most of them will stay behind they don't care um so but carp you know are so much different than than bass so mm-hmm. but yeah if if i mean if anyone has any questions about carp fishing and you know where to target them around here i'm sure um aiden wouldn't mind any questions or or uh, uh you know direct message about carp fishing in general now i know that you you know we were talking about the hill country and before we move on to canada a little bit i want to see if you know some areas around here that you've kind of experienced for carp um or maybe want to experience uh, with the club so i haven't spent a lot of time fishing east of austin um the furthest east that i've carp fished is uh on St. Gabriel, uh, east of Georgetown, which is not very east at all. Right. You know, we're an hour and 45 east of Austin, which is out of my realm of experience. But I know the rivers like the Brazos has big carp in it that are targetable. Um, or fishing, um, I don't know if there's carp in Yegua Creek. If yeah, you've seen them. so there there are carp there. It's just a lot harder to. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot harder to see. Of course, it's yeah. it's a different different range of topography. There's a bunch of trees, mm-hmm. but I've heard of carp at Lake Somerville, like in the coves. When it gets when the water gets a little bit higher, yeah. they go up in there. And I've actually had a few buddies that caught them, but they're you know it's tough because you're sneaking up on a level, yeah, bank. So. You know, the sight fishing is there, but you're really just kind of sight fishing their backs almost. You're not getting a vantage point view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's something that I want to try with you guys is, you know, chasing carp over there. So Yeah. Like, my carp experience is pretty limited. I've fished carp quite a bit, but I haven't fished in a wide range of places. places. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really focused in the hill country from... Uh, San Gabriel River to the north down to the Guadalupe River on the south end of it and just west out to Llano is about as far west as I've gone to chase carp. Um, So I'd really be interested in in seeing what other carp opportunities Texas has because I know Texas has some great carp opportunities further north, like up in Dallas, up in Waco. Um, and further east, College Station, uh, all the way into Houston. Houston, I hear, is really good, um, too, the bayous and stuff. So. Yeah. But, yeah, no, we got to try that out. Um, yeah, so if anyone has any questions about that, hit Aiden up uh, for carp fishing. or You know, you got a trip planned to the hill country. Um, you know, stop by Living Waters. That's a great fly shop there. Um, but, you know, Chris Johnson's amazing, great staff, all of them, KC. Um, so, yeah, they, I'm sure they know a lot about carp fishing over there, too. Those guys. Are, are, are there carp in Brushy Creek? There are. Really? And are my, they big? Or? My biggest carp ever came out of Brushy Creek. Um, really? It was uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> a senior year, uh, second semester in end of April, early May. I had was fishing with my dad and my sister for panfish with my four weight and I'd seen a really big carp. I'd seen a couple of them and one of them was over 20 pounds and I hooked it on a four weight and it took me <laughs> straight under the bank. There's a deep undercut bank where we were fishing. Okay. 
um, with a ton of roots and took me under there and the fly popped out of his mouth. Wow. Um, and I knew that that fish was there and I knew that I was going to go target it. So one day I decided that I was going to skip school one day and go, <laughs> go chase that carp. And, uh, so that night I tied up a fly, a little buggy fly, um, with light bead chain eyes on a size eight, uh, I think it's a Gamagatsu G carp hook. I believe that's what it is. Um, and, uh, I set up on where I knew that fish was going to be coming out from under that, from that undercut bank and put my fly right in his face. And he just barely stuck out his lips and sucked it in. And thankfully I went back with my eight weight and 20 pound test tippet. Mm-hmm. So I could crank that drag. Yeah. And I mean, he still pulled that, that drag and it was, it was cranked down pretty, pretty dang hard. Um, but I jumped into the water and was just weaving in and out of trees because he was, he, he was, was going. He, yeah, he knew what he was doing to try and get that fly out of his mouth. Yeah, um, and it took me several minutes to get him to the bank, and I was alone, of course. Skip school, school day, work day, <laughs> so you know, there's nobody else out there. Um, and I'm setting up my my dad's little camera on a rock and filming, and so the only <laughs> pictures I have of that carp are screenshots off of a video from a little Nikon camera. Hey, but. It- it's proof. <laughs> They're there. Yeah. Um, That's crazy, though. I didn't think there was there was any in, in there. Yeah. I mean, there's some... I know that, you know, in Brushy Creek in general, there's some deep pockets and undercuts. Because mm-hmm. um, I've only been a couple of times, but no, I've never seen a carp just feeding or cruising. Never. So... And I'm sure that was, you know, what, end of summer maybe? Or was it fall? Or no, so that was... Spring? Uh, that was May. Okay, so, so yeah, right right at the start of summer. summer. Um, and the carp had yet to spawn. It hadn't quite gotten warm enough for long enough for them to really spawn. Mm-hmm. And carp often spawn right after a rain, and we hadn't had a rain in a while. Um, so they hadn't spawned yet. So the carp I caught was a really thick female carp it that was, was full feeding. of eggs and had oh, just been okay. eating mm-hmm. all the time. Like you could see them underneath that bank. And they'd just be kicking out mud clouds, and you'd mm-hmm. see their tails kick out. Yeah. And you knew they were just underneath that bank, just Doing. mudding around and feeding. Yeah. But of course, when they're under the bank, it's you can't catch them. Yeah. Right? No, you got to pull them out somehow, yeah. attract them. That's yeah. crazy. Because even, and I bet you sometimes you can plop your fly in there and kind of work your fly back, and you can see them come out for mm-hmm. it. It's it's awesome to see that happen. Yeah. Well, yeah, like like I said, Aiden's here for uh, for all carp-related uh, questions and, and stuff. I hope to chase some carp with him in the future. But let's switch over, man, to Canada. Now, if I, if I remember correctly, you told me that uh, – is it that you have a house up there, that you go visit up there in Canada, that, you know, you've experienced a lot of fly fishing opportunities up there? Let's talk about that a little bit and uh, – when you started fishing up in Canada? So my family has uh, a cottage on Lake of the Woods, Ontario. And for those of you who don't know, Lake of the Woods is, aside from the Great Lakes, the biggest body of water in the U.S. Um, And it actually, it's in Minnesota, Manitoba, and Ontario. So it sits right on the corner of all three. 
and it is a massive body of water. It has over 14,000 islands on it. That's crazy. It has more area of shoreline than Lake Superior, the biggest Great Lake. Mm -hmm. It has more areas of shoreline because of all those islands. It has lakes on islands and islands on those lakes. It is massive. It's a glacier-carved lake, and it can get really deep, but... It has some incredible fishing opportunities. Um, so I first went up there when I was six weeks old. Obviously, wasn't fishing at six weeks old. Exactly. But I've been up almost every single summer and spent quite a bit of my time in the summers up there fishing. Um, and for the first several years, up until really recently, I almost exclusively conventional fished Lake of the Woods. And one of the reasons was... Lake of the Woods is really deep and really big, so the fish can spread out. Um, and fly fishing can be particularly hard to cover water in deep, deep. big areas, mm-hmm. right? You can you can absolutely do it, and fly fishing Lake of the Woods is an awesome thing if you can experience it, but you have to know what you're doing to, to hit it right. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. Two of the things I really like doing on Lake of the Woods are chasing smallies on the fly, particularly in June and July. They're up shallow. Mm-hmm. They're super aggressive. Oh, yeah. um, pre-spawn, a spawn, and post-spawn. I mean, they'll you you put anything in their face, they'll eat it. They'll eat big poppers, big streamers, you know, craw patterns, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically put the trolling motor on on low and just beat the bank. I'm casting at boulders down trees all the time. And I fish them with my six weight, generally speaking. Um, 12 pound test, uh, tippet and just throwing, throwing flies on a, I fish a sink tip more often than not, unless I'm throwing top waters just to get down a little bit more. Yeah. You got to, um, mm-hmm. the full sink would likely be even better. I just don't have a full sink for my six weight. So do you have the shovel, the shovel head or the shovel tip, whatever it's called? So I, I think that's like the heavier part of like the, the end of the line yeah so the the last 30 feet of my lines it's the type three sink tip okay so it sinks i think three inches a second or something i don't remember exactly what it is um but my favorite things to throw for smallmouth are articulated streamers i tie up uh it's basically a slider so it's a deer hair slider Mm -hmm. that i tie but i articulate it and put a bunny strip like like a strip. rabbit zonker like exactly almost, yeah off the back of it and a couple legs and that thing like the head the the deer hair head pushes a ton of water and that yeah. rabbit strip just flows so nicely it looks like a leech it looks like a minnow it looks like a crayfish Sculpin everything exactly mm-hmm. and those smallmouth crush it yeah um one of the things about fishing for smallmouth though on like the woods is you deal with a lot of pike so i tie a lot of flies and I know I'm going to lose quite a few of them because I don't like fishing wire leaders or my smallmouth. I find I get more bites with fluorocarbon. Mm-hmm. But pike, even little pike, I mean, you'll get a you know a one-pound pike, which is probably 12 inches, if that. He'll inhale a six-inch fly. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. 12-inch pike, 14-inch <laughs> pike, inhales a six-inch fly all the way up past your... Um, you're not cuts you off right there. Like there's with 12 pound test, there's very little you can do unless you set the hook 
perfectly and get it in the tip of his nose and that line doesn't touch his teeth. Exactly. Um, so it's one of the risks you have fishing smallmouth is you'll lose flies to pike. Um, but there's nothing more exciting than watching a smallmouth eat a fly. Like they come out, you'll see them shoot out from behind a boulder Gosh. and just come and crush a fly. I mean, they smash it so mm-hmm. hard because they're, they're just hungry and aggressive. And there's not yeah. a lot of people up there who fly fish, mm-hmm. you know, Every, everybody conventional fish they've seen the jerk bait yeah. they've seen the swim bait and that presentation is so much more subtle like it's more subtle it's subtle mm-hmm. it's realistic and those fish just go crazy for it now let's switch into the bigger fish that you chase up there so i chase um pike and muskie on the fly i'm still yet to get a muskie on the fly i've gotten muskie on conventional and i still love fishing muskie conventional fishing right but Fly fishing for them is such a rush. Um, I have a 10-weight and a 12-weight fly rod that I fish. Um, My 10-weight fly rod has a 450-grain full sink fly line on it, and I generally throw 8 to 11-inch flies on that when targeting pike and muskie. Mm -hmm. And then on my 12-weight, I'll throw 8 to 15-inch flies, and I have a 500 and 50 grain sink tip on that okay. rod. Um, so it's very fast sinking. Um, but what that means is you can get down, but you can also move your flies really fast. You can mm-hmm. look like a really fleeing bait fish and still be down, you know, three, four feet, five feet in the water column. Um, and when a pike hits, so I'm going to say pike just because I've only caught pike on the fly rod, um, not a muskie yet. When they hit, it feels like you hit the biggest boulder in the lake. Like everything just stops there, you know, um, it, it's, it's an incredible feeling. And one of the things you have to be good at is strip setting and not trout setting. I yep. know <laughs> a lot of times down here, I trout set for obviously trout, but I'll trout set for sunfish fishing dry flies yeah. and dry droppers. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally you'll catch me accidentally. Um, trout setting on carp and bass it happens but you carp set on or you trout set on a 30 inch pike with a five out hook you're not putting it through its mouth generally yeah. speaking you gotta so, you just like redfish man you gotta stick them and then it's you, it's off to the races i'm assuming stick them hard and <laughs> one of the things that i was uh told and i um actually i watched through blaine chocolate who's a uh big fly tire and guide um he had a video about musky fishing and he said whatever you do once you set the hook on that fish don't stop stripping in the line he's like don't worry about putting that fish on the reel mm-hmm. that fish will not put you on the reel because you're using heavy enough leader i'm using four uh six uh, I, I tie my own leaders and it goes 60 pound mono 40 pound mono to a 18 inch wire leader, um, tieable wire. And that's heavy enough that it's not going to break when you're pulling on it. Right. When you're pulling on a fish. Um, so he said, Blaine said in a video, don't put the fish on the reel. Don't let off the tension. Just keep stripping and keep getting that fish to the boat. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Um, and I, I caught myself on my first pike that I caught on the fly, I tried to put it on the reel right away. 
But what happens is that pike will turn towards you. And as your you know, fly reel doesn't pick up line particularly quickly. Exactly. And he swam towards me. That fly, like, you know, like, I've had flies pop out of their mouth so many times because I'm trying to reel in. And most recently, last year, I completely stopped putting fish on the reel and only stripped in line, and I landed every pike that I hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, in a, in a sense, you, you can use... A lot of people understand it in this concept, but you can use your hand as drag. Like you can let, you can still let line out, but Mm -hmm. I think keeping that tension, like you said, is most important. And yeah, he pulls a little bit, you know, let some tension off that line and let it go out a little bit and Mm -hmm. then work your way back into it. Cause I'm not sure how, how far y'all are casting for the, for the pike, but I'm sure you're going to have at least 20 to 30 yards of line out. So yeah, if not more, so <laughs> most of the casts I'm doing, um, just, it depends on the area I'm fishing and how quickly it drops off. Um, okay. if it drops off really deep, really quick, I'll be closer to shore. Yeah. Um, because m- most often I'm casting at structure on the shore. Yeah, looking boulders for, and looking trees. Looking and musky. Look, uh, casting between dock slips, casting at trees, casting at boulders, casting at a nook in the in the rocks, whatever. Um, if it drops off really quick, I'll be much closer. But there's places in the lake where, you know, it takes 100 feet for it to get down to, you know, 15 feet. Sure. So there's times where I'm casting 100, 105 feet of line out, which is my entire fly line and then some backing to get my fly far away from the boat and to go try and target some, some fresh water. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's just something about the, those pike that, when they hit. That's a dream fish of mine to get on the fly. Pike and musky, man. Cause yeah. I mean, I've seen the guys do the, even with the fly rod, they do the figure eight in the mm-hmm. water. And then you're, dude, once you're on that, it's like a little mini tarpon. Yeah. It really is. Cause they go jumping. They, and yeah, it's they go crazy. Um, so what, you know, I, I know that you, you tie your flies and stuff, but up there, is there a neat, um, plenty of fly shops up there, right? I'm, I'm assuming, or no, oh, no. So <laughs> not the, in that area, the part of Ontario that we're in, um, and even in Manitoba, there's not a lot of fly shops really there. Um, the closest thing to a fly shop we have within, gosh, it's gotta be four or five hours from us. Oh my gosh. Is a, a really awesome store called Lake of the Woods Sports Headquarters. And uh, they they sell bucktails and they sell tying material, but often that's for guys tying bass jigs. Okay. Like uh, bucktail jigs for bass or for, marabou jigs for, for smallmouth. For smallmouth. Okay. Um, but they do have tying materials. Um, do they sell flies? They don't. Oh, wow. At, at least last time I was there, they don't. Okay. Um, so that's one of the really interesting things about Lake of the Woods, <clears throat> at least on the north end where we're at, there's not a lot of fly fishing. Mm-hmm. So it's a totally new presentation to the fish that they haven't seen before. Um, and I'm sure that just is, I mean, that's for the better because yeah. they're, they're crushing it. Wow. I really thought there'd be a fly shop. I mean, you got to think about how big the lake is though. I mean, there's probably more stuff on the south side, I'm assuming. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought y'all had a, a little fly shop up there near y'all. I'm sure in Minnesota, where the Rainy River dumps into Lake of the Woods, I'm sure there's got to be a fly shop there. Up there, I yeah. haven't, I haven't been there, so I I can't say. But up up on our end of the lake, there's 
there's really not much. And Lake of the Woods, there's a lot of people on it. But when you look at the size of the lake versus how many people are on it, there is not a lot. I mean, it is such a massive lake. Yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, fly fishing where we're at just isn't a big thing Mm -hmm. because it's a lot harder to do. And everybody's stuck in their ways of conventional fishing, which don't get me wrong, is super effective and super fun. And I still like doing it. Um, And there's some fish that are really hard to target on the fly rod. Um, like walleye after they, after they spawn after say May or maybe early June, depending on the spring, once they move down to that 15, 20 feet of water, it's tough. It's <laughs> so tough to get a fly down and be patient enough and keep it in the strike zone long enough to get them to eat. Mm. Um, like you're sitting there casting the one walleye I caught on a fly was in 18 feet of water and I cast and I let my fly sink for 20 30 seconds and just slowly ticked it off the bottom wow and for me that's not a particularly interesting way to fish when i can go throw streamers as fast (laughs) as i want for pike and bass exactly so um there's certain certain fish that you kind of have to conventional fish or like the lake trout when they're 100 feet down in the water that's no you're not you're not fly fishing (laughs) the only way you're doing that is dropping some big old spoon look at things in those you know those attractor things that they troll with yeah exactly (laughs) but Um, that's that's still pretty i've never done that have you have you trolled for stuff like that yeah i it's not fun unless you're (laughs) unless you're on the whole we we troll for walleye sometimes okay and this uh this summer i found my great great grandpa's really old downrigger i mean it was probably 70 years old handmade is that what it's called kind of like those big rigs that yeah. have all the shiny and it, stuff it's got a cannonball on it basically <laughs> yeah you drop it down to whatever depth you want it at and troll your lure behind yeah. you and uh i did that one time this summer and i hooked a fish didn't land it and then ended up breaking off the cannonball because the line was so old that it just oh my god it snapped so i haven't spent a lot of time doing that but quite honestly, I much rather prefer casting, mm-hmm. be it conventional or fly fishing. Of course, because it's. I mean, it's more interactive. Mm-hmm. Like, I, oh yeah, for sure. If you told me right, like, going coming back home, trout fishing, you're either going to throw streamers all day or you're going to nymph all day. I'm going to pick the streamers, just because I like streamer fishing more. I'm not yeah. saying nymphing isn't effective. Nymphing can be so incredibly effective, uh, effective on trout. I like throwing streamers more. Yeah, personally speaking. Um, yeah. So. No, I think I think everybody uh, just got signed out real quick. Hold on. <laughs> I think everybody likes throwing uh, streamers, and I mean, for me, I think it. <laughs> now I've yielded some, some big bigger fish on nymphs, and uh, but I I feel like for the most part, when I'm throwing streamers, like. If you're throwing a big fly, something big has to eat it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It, it's almost kind of like that aspect of it. And um, I've had some little fish on streamers too, but I, I can't imagine. I think for 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 the majority of like also freshwater fishing too, like for for bass and and stuff like that, the bigger streamers you throw, the bigger eats you're gonna get, the bigger fish you're gonna get. So yeah, um, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, you got to not being that there's no fly shops up there. You got to prepare, man. When you, when you leave from here, you're like, I got to have my flies. I got to have everything set up for up there because I don't have a, you know, 20 minute drive to a fly shop or something like that. Yeah. So starting in about April, 
I start tying my flies for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll focus early on on my smallmouth flies. I tie a lot more of those early on. And then as we get closer to uh, whenever I leave for Canada, I start tying really big game changers. I fish mostly game changers or variations of big articulated streamers for pike and musky. Um, you know, hour long fly ties. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just sitting there forever tying. But right. when you produce a nice looking 12, 14 inch fly, it's really satisfying. Um, thankfully, with the big flies, I don't lose as many because I'm fishing steel leaders and I'm not getting hung up as often. And if I do, I can usually get the fly back. So I don't have to tie as many of those, but I do have to tie quite a bit for the smallmouth that I go chase. Um, and have to do it all before I head up there. Right, just so. preparing. That's awesome, though, man, that you can that you can go up there, catch some fish, spend time with family, and then come back here and chase a different wide range of species down here. Yeah. So that's cool. Now let's let's switch over to coming here to College Station, moving here for college, and and you know joining this club, becoming an officer. Um, how did that happen, and what do you? Uh, expect from the club what do you want to happen as far as you being the fly tying chair what plans do you have for uh for future meetings future uh events well so i joined this club i saw i think it was uh an instagram post from from you okay uh, just yeah. about the club and was was interested and i knew there was an Aggieland fly fisher but i knew that I, like i didn't know about a a&m fly fishing club right um so i saw that and um we, we went from there and uh like the main reason i joined the club was one i'm super passionate about fly fishing but two i want to get more people into it because i think it's such an awesome sport um but in terms of being the fly tying chair i want to show everybody how awesome and fun fly tying can be um and it's so incredibly rewarding to catch a fish on a fly you tied like it's it's fun it's all fun to catch a fish on um a fly you bought from the store you know just to catch a fish is a good time but to be like i put in the time and effort to tie that fly to catch that fish like it's uh it's really awesome it's you can't really get it anywhere else that that sort of feeling um such a satisfaction so just being able to to share that with people and have them be able to do the same thing um is what i'm looking to do and then for the for the future of fly tying um I hope in the future that we can get more vices and materials and stuff so we can have big fly tying nights. Mm-hmm. Um, I plan on doing a weekly focus on a fly. So, you know, like say the woolly booger fly. And I'll explain how we fish the fly, you know, what what it's for, and then do a step-by-step breakdown and hopefully be able to get everyone to tie their very own woolly booger. Mm-hmm. And then in turn, go take that out and go catch a fish with it. Right, right, because you can tie all you want, but like, and it's super exciting to produce a really nice looking fly. But I, in my opinion, it's more exciting to go catch a fish on the fly you tied. Exactly. So I want to be able to see people in the room tying together, having a good time doing that, but then also be able to take people out, go fishing, and go have them catch fish on that fly. Yeah, that's Um, a that's a big thing. I think what you know we can only build from there too, because you know. There could be some times where uh, you, you, we can show how to fish certain flies because 
the material is put into a fly. A lot of people think they're just it's just you know for for good looks and for for good uh, for, for our satisfaction. But if you think about it, you know a lot of the professional fly, uh, you know people who tie flies, they plan out the materials they put in because it looks a certain way in the water. Mm-hmm. It swims a certain way. So getting into that technical aspect of certain flies. I think is important and to let our members know maybe you know we we let it drift like this for a certain reason or we have the bucktail in in there for for this reason and, mm-hmm. and this is how you fish it so uh i think the more you know we i feel like the more technical you get the better because you get you know people uh curious about every little aspect so yeah that that might be pretty cool to implement one of the cool things about fly tying is that every material moves in the water slightly different or attracts the fish in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. No two material is the same. You know, um, rabbit zonker strips and um, marabou, they both swim really well. Mm-hmm. They both undulate, puff up, but they move differently. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you ever watch them in the water, they swim differently. Um, and every fly that you tie will move slightly different from the next one. Yeah. Unless you can perfectly replicate the fly, mm-hmm. like exact dimensions on every little thing, it's going to swim slightly different or float slightly different. Um, but that's one of the cool things is that you can build up such a variety um, just by slightly tweaking materials and things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. And then learning about the different you know materials there are there's so many different materials out there so yeah getting, you know that's a whole another thing so yeah i but. mean you walk into a, a really good fly shop like living waters fly shop you look at their material selection and you're like where do i begin be, yeah i mean it's a wall and more of tying materials and, and i like, i think a lot of people think that's common sense when but uh, you know it really isn't when you're beginning into tying you're like yeah. what is this used for what do i what do i use this for exactly and i think i think maybe even talking about materials just mm-hmm. in general is is a good way to to help people get into it yeah for sure that's another thing um that you just reminded me of that i think we'll we'll do mm-hmm. continue in the club is just i think one day just have a talk about materials yeah talk mm-hmm. about what flies we tie with uh marabou what flies we tie with elk hair what flies we tie with foam and i mean there's such a wide variety of materials there's australian possum that you tie flies with which is wild and crazy and then there's simple things like um a hen cape right Mm -hmm. on a off of a off of a chicken um or you know i tie flies with duck feathers from ducks Ducks, that i duck harvest mallard flank yeah um (laughs) I mean, there's all sorts of things. It's it's super cool. So I think that's another another thing that the club should look forward to in the future is just a a, a big discussion on materials. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. I mean, there's so many of them. That's a that's a good idea. I think we can do that soon because I think that's that's more important before we jump into the flies and actual tying. So yeah. even though we've had a few tying nights and the guys and gals have done really really good. So. Yeah, for sure. But dude, it, I, th- I mean, I think we're about to close up here. Uh, you know, I, it was great talking to you about these different topics. And if anyone has questions, uh, you know, they can find Aiden uh, through our Instagram or his Instagram. Shoot him a DM. I know he's involved in Ducks Unlimited too. 
Um, so that's that's pretty awesome. That's that's just kind of like what we're doing, but for ducks, you know, it's much, conservation, yeah. just protecting uh, marshes and stuff like that. So that's cool. Um, anything you have to say, man, to everyone out there before we close? Not really. Get out if you can. Go fishing. Have a good time. Um, you know, regardless of where you are, try and find some people that that share the common interest to fly fishing. Get with them. Have conversations. Get engaged. It's a yeah. great way to have a ton of fun and, you know, just get outside. I think that's one of the most important things that fly fishing does for us is conservation, but also getting us out of the house, mm-hmm. off the couch. You know, get to, like for me, fly fishing is a break from school. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm at school all the time, but sometimes I need a break. So I go fly fishing and yeah. go catch a ton of fish and have a grand old time. So and it, it yeah, what 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 better way to do that than with other people exactly. that, that also need to get away from school. So mm-hmm. so okay, man. Well, thank you for coming on this this uh, this episode. And uh, yeah, we uh, will have a meeting actually tomorrow tomorrow night. This podcast should be out uh, by the end of today, uh, and that will be with uh, Brandon Booth from Loco Ranch. Um, he is going to talk about Aggie Park a little bit, how they manage uh, Aggie Park, the, the fish they've stocked, and kind of what the future plans for that pond looks like and uh, how we can help better protect it. So um, he'll probably also be touching on a few other fisheries as well. So, um, yeah, we'll be at Texas Fly Fishing Festival this weekend. Um, we'll have a booth there, the Brewfest in Mesquite, Texas, so make sure to stop by. But um, other than that, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you later. See ya. Thank you all.